When do you and Nobuyo do it? We don't need that anymore. Is that true? We're connected in our hearts, not down here. Cut it out. That sounds fishy. How do you think we're connected? Money. Normally. But we're not normal. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title like this one, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 101, and we are back to Erica's choice this time. What are we talking about today? We are talking about Shoplifters from 2018, written and directed by Hirokazu Koreeda, with Lily Franke, Sakura Ando, Kieran Kiki, Mayu Matsuoka, Jio Kari, and Miyu Sasaki. And I apologize for any pronunciation errors I made then or will continue to make. The film is about a family with unorthodox methods of making a living who take in a young child they found outside in the cold. Now, we are recording this just days before leaving for Tokyo ourselves. Did that have any bearing on this choice or was it just a happy accident? I think more a happy accident. I think I decided on this one. Two seconds after leaving the theater, when we saw it. And I think that was also before we had completely decided on Japan for our trip. Well, one of the reasons I ask is because Koreda has said that he struggles with the idea of being responsible for representing Japan to the world through his films. He's not trying to make travel brochures. His films aren't spectacles or historical pageants. And we've often heard it said that he is considered the successor to Ozu... But those parallels are obvious, I think, and a little superficial. The family drama angle is the thing that they both share, but I feel like Koreeda's films have more to do with class than Ozu's did. Ozu worked comfortably within a particular strata of the Japanese middle class, and it was much more about family dynamics. Koreeda observes family relationships just as closely, but class mobility and external societal pressures exert a lot more influence. He also pays a lot more attention to the working class, so I think more of these films as a little closer to Mike Lee without all the shouting, probably. (laughs) The other reason I asked that question right off the top is because film is one of the primary ways that we, you and I, we, and other people like us, I assume, experience the world. Seeing places on screen is probably a common first step in fostering my interest in going somewhere and seeing those places firsthand. Is it the same for you? Does it matter much, for instance, to you if your exposure isn't what people would think of as the most conventionally attractive elements of a place like this? I'm with you, and that started for me way back when I was a kid, and I think that's why I'm a Francophile to this day. And I wouldn't consider myself to be a Japanophile in that same sense. But really, if anything, it makes me more interested in people, no matter where they are. It does make me wonder, though, about those places that we probably won't see during the course of our kind of limited trip. Yeah, I wonder that, too, because I'm interested in knowing a place. 
Anytime the edges get sanded off a little too much, that superficiality makes me suspicious. The weird parts, the dark parts, the quiet parts, those are the things that I want to see. I want to know all about that. And I think you're 100% right in that the people are the other half of that equation. When I put all those things together, those odd things and the uniqueness of the people I meet are what is going to give that place character. Now, do you feel you know a little bit more about Tokyo now, having seen this? Just a tiny fraction? Maybe just a very little bit. And really, that's also why I wanted to start learning languages when I was a kid. I had this goal, and I still have it, to be able to go anywhere and talk to anyone. Doesn't that sound like the best way to go? Oui. I know, I'm trying to think of the two words of Japanese that I've picked up. I don't know if you picked up on that, but that was my Michael Palin as the Cardinal in the Dock impression. Very good. Deep cut for you Monty Python fans. <laughs> Very good. I'm going to ask you just in a second how you feel about this, but I'm delighted and also a bit reluctant to talk about shoplifters this time around. I'm delighted because the film blew me away when we saw it just a few months ago. And I really don't think I will be able to see anything better in theaters first run this year or any year. It's hard to imagine that anything else could be this good. But I'm almost regretting having chosen this. It does not get easier to watch. It does not lose its impact. It's difficult to watch this more than once in a short span of time. I think I hold it in almost as high regard as you. And I say almost only because... You don't go to the theater as often with me as I do. I see a little bit more in the theater than you, so I've seen Burning on the big screen. You only got to see that at home. It's true. Sama, we saw together. I don't know. That's pretty tough to beat. That was before this. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing before shoplifters and after shoplifters. Okay. But yes, overall, I would say this is a magnificent choice. This was easily in my top 10 for 2018. Top three, even, possibly. And in reading more about this and more about Corneida, whose body of work I'm not familiar with, sadly, but am going to be familiar with, I think I understand him a little bit better. I think I also understand my own feelings about it. He does consider himself to be a pessimist, but he still can make films with some level of intrinsic hope. And I do really appreciate that he said he never wants to make a movie that has people leaving the theater feeling like the world is terrible and that they hate everything. Now, before we get started with the film itself, I just want to repeat our standard spoiler statement because this is such a new film. There may be a lot of people who still haven't had the chance to see it. And the way information unfolds is very important here. What the characters understand to be their reality at any given moment is key. So I definitely recommend trying to watch this first, and then come back to our episode. Well, that being said, then, I love this opening scene. We're introduced to two characters that appear to be father and son. We'll come to learn that they are Shota, the boy, who moves into the frame first, followed by the father, Osamu. This is a really great example of how score works to develop a scene. Without music, it would be a well-blocked and smoothly executed sequence but the addition of music makes it something else entirely. When they cross the threshold of that store and then that little piano figure happens, it introduces this as a kind of ritual dance. I realized watching it the second time, this is a piece of choreography. You've got agile maneuvers through the aisles and around corners, this series of hand signals and good luck gestures. 
And by the way, the assistant director came up with those hand signals. And these two figures moving in parallel through the store. And I have watched a lot of surveillance footage in my day. Is this job related or something else? Job related. And let me say, this is good work by these guys. Osamu is passing on the tricks of the trade. And I feel like this is something that will echo all the way through to the very end of the film. It's what he has to teach. It's what he can offer this boy. One of these lessons he imparts as they're on their way home, it's expensive only if you pay for it. That is something that will turn out to reverberate all the way through the very last frame. It's really a brilliant piece of writing and structure. You've got these ideas and themes that are so casually, even harmlessly introduced, they'd end up carrying enormous weight by the time the lights come up. And I think it's so interesting as well that they pay for those croquettes because that's a one-to-one transaction. That's a person who could potentially be harmed if they stole from her. And then on this companionable walk home after the shoplifting score, taking leads to finding something. And it's a little girl on a porch who's been there before, no mother, it's very cold, and she's in her pajamas. I love these little details. In this instance, when they find her, the sound of a bottle in the alley is what gets their attention, almost like she's a stray animal. And then they decide to bring the little girl home with them, and she's kind of tentatively absorbed into this family dinner, even though they say they're not a foster home. And so we get to see this living situation, this tiny house, home to three generations, what seemed to be mother and father, grandmother, son, aunt, and now the very little girl. And that house is jam-packed. It seems a scene familiar to me when you see a lot of hoarding shows where basically stacks of things shape entryways and exits. And it's a scene that we're supposed to be familiar with, this idea of multiple generations living together in Japan, the importance of blood relations in Japanese society. But here, we're going to see how that's been changing, completely dismantled in the director's words. And there's some key information here, which won't mean as much right now, but they're living off of the grandmother's pension. And that idea of we can't get involved with this little girl, we can't bring the police into this, seemed to mean one thing. Presumably that they can't reveal the extent of the shoplifting that they're doing. And over the course of the evening, we discover that Yuri shows signs of abuse, this little girl. Did you feel like Nobuyo, the mother of the household, was keeping her distance initially, even with this discovery? I did, and she doesn't seem like that traditional mother, the maternal person that we're also used to seeing. There's not a lot of physical affection to anyone, including her husband. In fact, when the family's introduced, she's separate. She's segregated, eating in another room by herself. Did you think also that the director was saying something about possibly this crime that's been committed that we don't really know what it is against the little one, Yuri, this abuse, this neglect, is passed over more often than the crime of shoplifting? I don't know if he was making a larger general statement about that condition, but I do think he was making a specific statement about the household that she comes from. And the extent and depth of the neglect only multiplies as we keep going, which we glean a little more about soon because Osamu and Nobuyo go to take Yuri home and they hear her parents fighting, specifically saying they never wanted her. 
even wanting to not become attached, Nobuyo cannot leave her there under these circumstances. Do you think that's because she recognizes her own youth in this, or is it just outcast siding with outcast? At that point, I really didn't have a good handle on her character. It seems like that act is even almost passive. It's not actually returning her instead of making a decision to say, we're not taking her back. And visually, we've been setting up our pattern. These cramped spaces, entryways, small exits, urban noises, streets with no obvious passages out to bigger things. And that compartmentalization, some of which I see Nobuyo doing, there's Shota in his cupboard, which, by the way, mirrored Koreeda's experience. Yeah, nothing projects this image more than this rabbit warren of a house. Koreeda, as you say, says that this is very similar to the house that he grew up in as one of six people living there, not just five. So much of this is alleys, doorways, tightly cramped spaces. It's a very narrow range of places and experiences that they are allowed to occupy is the point. Even the lighting schemes in later scenes funnel them into more and more narrow and dark spaces. And you already brought this up. It's three generations living together in this narrow little space. But he turns this idea on its head a little bit. Do you feel like he is making a particular judgment about the traditional family structure here? He talks a lot about developing this story and how important it is to have people missing from the family dynamic. And again, about how this world is also completely changing in Japan. If anything, I see that he's saying, this is a warm place to be. This is an inviting place to be. This forced closeness is still closeness. But no one quite has anything of their own. And then it's essentially these outcasts who are actually continuing on this tradition. Yeah, it's an interesting mix, I think. Regardless of how much he may seem to be in favor of choosing your own family, I don't get the feeling that he's saying blood is irrelevant. Agreed. I think he's still trying to figure it out. I don't think there's one answer, and I don't think he does either. It's just that we shouldn't discount the other reasons that people gravitate to one another. They can be just as valid and powerful as blood, if not more. And he talked about developing this story, and in early drafts, he thought it was too unclear as to why everyone was here. And so the final versions, he wanted to specifically make it clear why everyone has chosen to be here, or chosen to continue to be here. Yeah, I think the subversion here comes by virtue of what binds them. But they obviously both enjoy and rely on this, outwardly at least, traditional dynamic. I'm thinking particularly of the scene where Grandma takes the real estate guy over to the more cramped side of the house while the kids slip out the back door. Shota takes Yuri out to steal and to where they found him in the car, sharing and teaching like a big brother, while Grandma deals with this bureaucrat that's obviously just out for himself. So, if we, as outcasts, it's telling us, band together, it at least affords us a level of protection that we don't have individually. It helps protect us from various forces looking to exploit us. And in some cases, it allows us to exploit them instead before they can do that to us. With all that in mind, would you categorize this bond as affection, duty, or something else? Obviously, it's different after the first viewing. Did that significantly change how you answer this question? I think multiple viewings have changed and deepened it, and it gives me more questions to ask for myself. I think that we're shown over and over and over and over again 
that there is a love, at least in some form, at the basis of all of these relationships. I don't think it's duty, even though I think promises have been made. And I'm thinking again about this idea of this traditional structure essentially being untenable after a certain point. Because we see the reality of this tiny house squeezed among these apartment buildings, and so she's being pressured to move out clearly. Though it's ostensibly supposed to be for her own good so that she's not alone. But the reality is, Japan is an aging population, and the rate of relative poverty for those over 65 is 21%, while the average is 13%. Poverty is definitely one of those larger external pressures that I was talking about, We're shown scenes of Osamu and Nobuyo's working lives. They're not just grifters. They're both gainfully employed, but it's not enough. Or is it? I'm left to wonder. When you look around this house, you begin to see some of the spoils of their thievery that aren't necessities. Some of these things are just piling up. So I immediately wonder, is this a mild indictment, at the very least, of Osamu's character in particular? Is he more provider, or is he more mischievously criminal, 5149? Or just kind of lazy to a certain degree? But those could be indictments leveled against any person in poverty by people outside of poverty. Though we do see him clearly thinking up any excuse not to go to work. Honestly, I don't blame him. And we see Nobio cutting those corners as well. So is it just in their character? Well, I think the more you see of the workplace struggles, the better idea you get. On Osamu's side, he hurts his foot. This means no work for a month. That's bad news for a family that appears to be one bad day from the street. His co-worker finds out that he has this family when he's injured. A further potential complication. Meanwhile, at her job, we see that Nobuyo is kind of a natural caretaker. She's covering people. She's checking her co-workers for mumps. We see these small but maternal gestures that she makes to her co-workers that she did not make toward this young child that was just introduced. Her actions to me in these scenes reinforce this idea that family is not automatic. It's not guaranteed necessarily by blood nor proximity. It's something that must be tended, specifically the idea of family as held in Japan, which I think has held on longer to a more traditional idea of what that is compared to us in the United States. But there may be cultural differences and depths that we completely miss here, I do admit. The thing I like the most about watching these characters develop is that, especially for Nobuyo, even those instances of some maternal aspects, she's never sweet. I'm never thinking, oh, this is a lovable person through and through. I want her to hug me to her bosom. She's just so much more interesting than that. There's a pronounced lack of sentimentality in a lot of these relationships. For instance, you see an episode soon of some brother-sister bonding between Shota and Yuri, and one of the most important and revealing lessons that he imparts is that you forget the people that are gone. That's in the past. It's an incredibly adult sentiment for a 12-year-old to be dealing with so matter-of-factly. It's a kid-sized microcosm of dealing with grief, I feel like. You said compartmentalization earlier. They do a lot of that, but I think in this particular instance, it would diminish this particular piece of his philosophy, which is, don't focus on what's lost, focus on what's found. It's easy to say when you're not directly facing that loss, but it truly doesn't make sense to do anything else. Their precarious position as a family 
is just a metaphor for all of our lives, basically. We're not promised a tomorrow. Act accordingly. Well, in that sense, Shota is really being a caretaker almost. And we learn that for Yuri, she has none of that. Her parents haven't reported her missing yet. And so there's even more danger of being caught, especially if people decide to become too nosy or too interested. Just for clarity's sake in the conversation as we go on, she's Yuri, she's Jury. She also gets renamed as Lynn later. I'm going to just consistently refer to her as Yuri so we know we are talking about the same person. Got it. And in this dynamic, everyone has to pull their weight. And for Grandma, that's the pension. For Aki, who I was sort of calling the aunt, it's her job at the peep show. And she's using another name as well. She uses her sister's name. But she actually doesn't have to contribute to the family. And I get the impression that she doesn't have to contribute based on a deal that Grandma struck in her favor. There's an episode when she and Grandma go out on the town having tea, talking about side boob. I really love this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Of all of these pairings that we see working together, is this one your favorite? Oh, gosh, that's really hard to say. Especially, I think it changes throughout the film. But it is the one that feels the most like family. It's definitely the one that's gradually revealed to be the most complex, I would say. And it is really satisfying the way it unfolds, even though it ends up on kind of an unsettled note. And as far as Aki's job goes, this is the second selection in a row we have, coincidentally, with a peep show aspect. And in both cases, I think it's a metaphor for this compartmentalization, this isolation, this separation. The cuts to and from the peep show in particular get my attention. In this first instance, there's the jump cut to Grandma Gambling. As a storytelling device, I think this is definitely not an accident. Do you make a particular instinctive association when you see that? This is probably just me, but I always think of it as an irresponsible choice. The gambling, not the storytelling part. I think I'm in the same boat as you. As it relates to Aki, I think of Grandma's gambling as something that she hopes will cover them both but ends up being counterproductive and maybe destructive in the long run because good luck is clearly not a hallmark of these people's lives. Corrieta is specifically showing us those people who are not covered in that safety net. Those people outside of society, not covered by other things. And that applies all the way down to even if you're five years old because we soon see that Yuri is now in on this act unplugging the door sensor while Shota steals fishing poles. This is one of those things that, in the long run, I think, points to character. Osamu is injured, but he still chooses to go out and steal. He does not get up to do legitimate work. This at least partially answers that question of necessity versus maybe compulsion even for me. It's tough. I go back and forth because there's a moment later on that made me question, possibly he can't really read. He might be functionally illiterate. So I don't think everyone has a world of choices in front of them. Well, one important thing in the aftermath of this thievery excursion, Shota is clearly upset by the new family dynamic that is evolving. The presence of Yuri upsets the equilibrium more than once, in fact. First, as they struggle themselves to adjust internally to her arrival, and then later as they band together against outside forces to keep her presence among them from being uncovered. You can file all of that under those acts of tending and family upkeep that I was talking about. So then what makes a parent? When we see Osamu, he is so 
desperate to be called dad by Shota, something that Shota has been withholding. And he seems completely defined by the context of all of the relationships around him. How do they feel about him? And then he's the one who is trying to insist that Shota call Yuri sister. He seems to be really the one that's tending all of this, trying to make this family, trying to keep it together. The sweet one, if you will. Well, he's definitely the sweet one. Although in the beginning, it feels like grandma might be the softy too, as receptive as she is specifically to Yuri. Although she also takes care of Aki in the same way. But she also has that pragmatic side. She's very honest, for instance, about buying off a lonely death. She is avoiding that through this arrangement she's made with these people. And she refers to her insurance policy. I want to give you a little bit more context here so we can think about what these amounts, what this money really means. So grandma's pension for damages, she says, is actually her husband's. And here it's 60,000 yen per month, which is about $538, which neither you nor I could live on that amount. And I find it interesting that A criticism leveled against the Japanese pension system is that it's considered unfair to working women because full-time housewives receive their husband's benefit without ever having contributed to that overall amount. You mean contributed through paying taxes, that sort of thing? Right, through working. Again, I think about a person whose choice is really denied to them. And then for those 65 and older, they can receive at max 779,000 yen, And that's just under $7,000 for the whole year. Again, not enough to live on. So she has to have some sort of an insurance plan. So in this case, everyone's contributions are absolutely necessary, it feels like. Whatever work they can get, whatever food they can steal, everyone has their own set of concerns and weight to pull in this arrangement. That's an awful lot to put on a kid, for instance, when I think about it, because the next thing we see is Yuri sitting off by herself. She's worried about Shota and whether her being here has driven him away for good, whether he'll ever come back again. Now, the first time through this film, I was acutely aware at this point of asking myself, are they all cast-offs? Or if some of them have chosen this way? I think we come to an answer eventually. Do you feel settled on that question? I think I do, even though I might vacillate on it a bit. When I look at... Nobuyo and Grandma talking about family that you choose, where the bond comes from. It seems like they chose each other. It seems like a progressive relationship built by adults on love, and I really still believe that, even though it's complicated. The only one I might quibble with, and this is a very fine hair to split, is Aki in this case, because I feel like, yes, she very definitely chose this, But I don't get the feeling 100% that she was cast off. She obviously comes from a stable family, economically well off. The situation might not have been ideal living there for her, but I don't think for a lot of people it would necessarily drive them away. And she was definitely not thrown out. I don't get the feeling. I think of her more in her strict family situation being superfluous. She's not thought of. She's not the baby in the same way. Her parents don't really keep tabs on her. And so when she gets that loving warmth from grandma, I think that's the thing that she was waiting for. When I look back at it, films about choosing your own family are common for us, I feel like. Antonia's line and Female Trouble both just recently. 
Are you conscious of gravitating to that theme? Does it have a particular appeal or resonance for you? I am completely unconscious of it. It's also interesting that we covered some of that territory in Paris, Texas, too. So it's not something that I really think about. Is it something that you've thought a lot about? Because before you answer, to me, it seems a bit more reflective of you than it necessarily does of me. I think you're probably right. And I think some people might find that odd, in fact, because I feel really lucky in terms of my family and my upbringing. I wouldn't change a single thing about it. So it's not a response to that necessarily. For me, I think the appeal is rooted in independence, maybe to the point of selfishness. I'm a big fan of building my world the way I want it. Acceptance isn't really important as a factor. It's more about surrounding myself with people that challenge and inspire me. And I also base entry to that circle on how much people will just leave me alone. I thought you were going to say there are maybe three riddles involved. <laughs> no, it's not that complicated. But I do think it's definitely not really anything to do with my childhood life, but exactly what I want to make as an adult now that I'm free to do that. I think what attracts me the most and the theme that I gravitate to, especially because of recent work situations, is this idea of what do we owe each other, if anything? What does the younger generation owe the older and vice versa? And I'm so fascinated, as I mentioned before, about this idea of this traditional family structure being untenable. And then what do you do at that point? Well, it's an interesting question to ask, what do we owe each other? Because this is the point in the film, I think, where the family has gone all in. The news has just mentioned, finally, after two months, that Yuri is missing. And it's now or never. It's do or die. And they cross the Rubicon with this with no turning back. They cut her hair and rename her Lynn. And it's clear that they fully intend now to make her a permanent part of the family. And I think of that agreement that's almost like a promise again, that she was saved and that she wants to be here. Oh, that is just so fraught with complications. Can a five-year-old decide that? I don't know even how to begin to address this. Yuri, though, adjusts to this new development without much difficulty at all. Kids are obviously very resilient. Like you say, they do ask at one point, do you think she chose us? Wondering if maybe the bond is stronger if you choose that family than just who you are randomly biologically assigned. It's a really interesting discussion and something that will continue to play out. And I like something that Corieta said about this. Nobuyo's statement about choosing, that for him it was more of a wish for that to be true rather than her actually speaking a truth. And that grandma's counter statement that those relationships don't always last and that there's almost less expectation if there's no blood tie is also true. And yet, Grandma chose them too. In retrospect, maybe that doesn't mean what we thought it meant the first time. What was the difference in how you took this the first time versus the second time when Grandma made this declaration? I think, honestly, I was just kind of dim. I just take it as it goes, and so it didn't really occur to me. I thought she was talking a bit more about Lynn than anything else. Well, it's not unreasonable to focus on that because... They've all been going along a certain way for a long time. And Yuri has added a new dimension to all their relationships with each other. With each arrival and departure in this clan, I imagine there has to be a period of readjustment, and some things take longer than others. For instance, Shota is almost immediately willing to call Yuri sister, but isn't yet ready to call Osamu dad, even though they've been together years now, I get the impression. 
And really, that still didn't give me a huge amount of pause. It still took me a while. But we'll get there. And everyone is trying to figure out how things are going to work now. I think probing the edges of these relationships. In the course of a lazy afternoon conversation that we did for our opening scene, it seems like Aki is trying to get a better handle on the dynamic of the household now that Yuri seems to be here permanently. She's doing this by speculating about Osamu and Nobuyo's relationship a little bit. And he finally asks her, how do you think we're connected? Money, she says, which I think is close, but not quite. But it's still revealing. It's clear that this transactional basis is what she considers normal. That's her baseline. But we're not normal. It's not money that's connecting them. It's crime, truly. It's a more prevalent and potent bond than I think we often consider. Koreda's view of crime is that it's a societal ill, that crime is something that society should own collectively, to accept as a communal responsibility. With that in mind, why wouldn't it be as valid a basis for family as anything else? And even if that connection or that obligation or whatever it is, is crime, there is still, I think, love at the basis for everything. I don't think that they would stay otherwise. There's nothing hateful about what's going on here. Maybe I'm just being really naive, though. What do you think? I think you're mostly right, but there are things that give me pause. That whole idea that there is no honor among thieves, it's true so much of the time, and there are issues that will demonstrate that self-preservation is every one of their fallback positions. I'm totally with you, and it also reminds me of another feeling I have, which is that as much as I love this and I'm so fascinated by everyone, I'm not necessarily on anyone's side particularly. I don't feel like I'm constantly judging them, but I'm also not necessarily rooting for them. It's hard not to be sympathetic, though. It's hard not to be drawn in because, for instance, in the scene coming up, we sense a huge sea change for Nobuyo that comes when they go on this shopping trip for the beach. Yuri's fear about getting in trouble regarding the clothes, and then later when they share identical wounds from abuse when they're taking a bath, it's so powerful. I assume this is bonding of a sort that Yuri has never experienced, right? And perhaps that Nobuyo has never experienced this intensely? Definitely for Nobuyo, maybe in Yuri's distant past, her grandmother probably was the only person who was kind to her. And I know what you mean. I'm definitely not rooting for their failure by any stretch of the imagination. I can just examine them, I think, a little bit from the outside and see their faults. But truly, there's love here, that connection that the two have, and that incredibly important lesson that Nobuyo gets across to Yuri. Hitting is bad. That is not love. This whole scene, there's a huge sequence here from when they get home from the shopping trip that is amazing in terms of how they demonstrate the parallels between the children and the adults. In addition to the scene that we just saw with them in the bath, we also see that the bond between Shota and Osamu is on display here too, just not necessarily as overt. As we walk through the house in this next scene, you can see that these two are both laying the same direction, reading, foot propped up on one leg. They are completely mirroring each other. Osamu in the foreground, Shota in the background. They're identical. And so it just keeps reinforcing this idea in this section that everything here connotes comfort, 
safety, family, and all that culminates when they are sitting on the porch burning Yuri's old things. Nobio is explaining, like you say, that love is not abuse, but it's about warmth and well-being. It's a wonderful scene as she envelops her and does everything that she can to make her feel safe. And I should say, for me, everything but one. There's one thing that sticks out to me that she never does. She never kisses her, which is just a maternal thing that I assume was going to happen. So I'm left to wonder, is that a cultural thing or is she still attempting to maintain at least one barrier? Some tiny bit of distance because she knows what their lives are and that the potential for separation is always in play. I don't have a way of answering that because just in my family, we don't kiss. When I was a kid, one of my older cousins was a person who kissed everyone on the lips, which seemed odd to me at first, but then once I got more used to it, it was really delightful. This is Virginia after all, right? It is. <laughs> and it wasn't creepy. I want to make that clear. So I don't know if she's holding back. I don't know if it's culture. Because we see in a bit that the stakes for her are as high as they could possibly be. She threatens a coworker with death, and I believe her if that coworker is going to squeal on them. I should say right here that this is definitely the part of the film where Sakura Ando shifts everything into overdrive. This performance of hers is just incredible. It's good all the way along, but this is the scene where it starts to become great. Corrieda said that he didn't still fully understand everything that she could do, everything that she was capable of. There's just something too mysterious about her talent. And, you know, Shota learned something really important about love, too, from a shopkeeper who says, love is not making your sister shoplift with you. I like that because something is happening on two levels. One, yes, it's a lesson in that familial bond. But two, I think that is the point that plants the seed for Shota's moral conundrum to come. I think that's the first very inkling of it. I'm with you, definitely. Now, you brought up a second ago... That issue of Nobuyo facing redundancy at work, how shitty of a management practice is this where it's basically you employees work it out between yourselves, but one of you has to go? It is the worst. In comparison to Aki's most congenial peep show boss, this is terrible. Well, the upshot of it is that Yuri is now blackmail material. This should be making us nervous. The more people know the more dangerous things become for them. I don't think that in my heart, though, I ever thought they were going to get away with it forever. Did you? That makes one of us. <laughs> no, I am so dumb. That's why I didn't want to watch it again right now. Well, if you are that slow on the uptake, you don't need to be around when Grandma comes visiting. She goes to see her husband's son and his family. A grifting we will go. Talk about how are people connected? Sex, love, obligation, who knows? She's there, she says, to honor her former husband, which makes his son incredibly uncomfortable because he must have left grandma for another woman and then they continue to pay for it. You can't fight blood, she says. And we learn what we alluded to earlier. This is Aki's family. These are her parents. So how all of these threads have been woven together, I have no idea. And that's when I started to wonder, was grandma ever a mother? 
I don't get the impression that she ever was. I get the impression that she was separated from that husband so long ago and has since been alone that that never happened. I think my favorite element of this scene here is that Coreda gives us a quote-unquote proper family here for comparison. And we see their situation is not enviable. They're ignorant of their daughter's circumstances. I get the impression that they're happy to leave it that way. Aki is not a runaway. She's not missing. As far as they know, she is abroad and content to not come back anytime soon. In the course of that, we do find out that the Akia Sayaka name, that inside joke that she plays, it's a dig at her family that she's walked away from. Now, as we are leaving this scene, did this cut to the peep show momentarily worry you that maybe her father had been there? That never occurred to me. Even after you said it, it still doesn't really occur to me. It doesn't feel like that level of lust comes into play, even though we're a about to start to get into more of a sexual connection. Maybe it's just too much true crime. That was my initial instinct, probably based on statistics and probabilities around sexual abuse and runaways. I think it's mainly because we don't get a really good shot of her dad. It's all side profile, at least in my memory. Those people are, to me, the superfluous ones. Well, that cut leads us to another notable episode, I think, as Aki meets her client face-to-face for the first time. It's a parallel of that scene with Yuri and Nobio in the bath. They're connecting over stories of family, and in this case, hurting themselves, not being hurt by other people. I think it is really significant, though, that we see Aki bonding this way with someone relatively anonymous and not one of the members of her adopted family. She is just simply not as connected to them the same way you see the other relationships represented. But I tell you who is connected... Osamu and Nobuyo, in this next scene that you referred to, things get a little randy at lunchtime in the rain. Just like the good old days. I like it most because we again think about how Osamu needs that validation from everyone, in this instance that he did it the right way, that he did it good. (laughs) And we also learn an incredibly important piece of information. Osamu was Nobuyo's client. In terms of him receiving that affirmation, I think it's really critical that Nobuyo is the one that initiates this encounter. I feel like in a roundabout way for them, Yuri's presence is a rejuvenating force. They are a couple after all, which we'll learn from the ending. But do you get the feeling that this part of their lives has been dormant for a long time? I do, yeah. I think that they just sort of shut that down a while ago because really, logistically, when are they ever alone? This is simply an accident of Shota having a different playmate. And I think in themselves, more compartmentalization, shutting off that sexual part of yourself. I get it and all, wanting to get back to that after having been dormant for that long. But let me just say one thing. Don't waste perfectly good noodles, please. Cold noodles on a hot day sure do hit the spot. (laughs) But somebody's going to rain on their parade kind of quickly. Yeah, a whole house full of people, as a matter of fact. Everybody begins to return home in the afternoon slash evening, and we can see that Aki is obviously very affected by her interaction with her customer. Grandma can tell because Grandma knows everything. Nobuyo picks up on it too, and she says he was a customer too, referring to Osamu. It made me just wonder here, what is Aki's relative isolation a product of? Because we can see all the ways that she and Nobuyo are the same, I feel like it's something within her 
not something necessarily to do with the family, because they are as open and affectionate with her as they are the others. She just doesn't quite seem capable of returning that as completely to anyone but Grandma. There's a reservoir of dissatisfaction in her, I feel like, that is not addressed by this situation. So you think nature versus nurture here? Definitely. That they had two different family backgrounds? I don't even think it has to do with family backgrounds. I think it is innately to do with Aki's character and what she wants, or possibly not even knowing what she wants at this point. Even with that struggle to connect, though, I really do like how this scene illustrates how people have been brought into this fold in all sorts of ways, and that they all seem equally valid. The transactional nature of their relationship, whether that's in the beginning or if it's even still the case, doesn't make this something to be ridiculed or diminished if it works for them. And still, everything is through that very limited lens that they have. The fireworks are happening. And they can only look up through the break in the roof and the trees to where the fireworks would be. They can only hear the sounds. And the composer had a really interesting idea for the score in general. It was that the characters were to him like little fishes swimming around at the bottom of the ocean. And all of the music was only what they could vaguely hear from way above them. It's a really nice touch, especially right here, because I feel like through their narrow piece of sky, it's very clear they don't have much, but what they have, they share enthusiastically. It is really all coalescing right now in terms of feeling like a true family. And that's really on display in this next wonderful section when they go to the beach. The whole world has opened up for them. There's so much connection, so many smiles from Shota that we've never seen before now. Grandma seems to be sinking, though, and Shota is growing up. His connection to Osamu is good here. He needs to know that his growing up is normal. That comes about because Shota notices Aki in her bikini, and it raises a little bit of the specter of the complications of family that's not actually family. There's a whole new set of questions all of a sudden. But in this case, as early on in the process as it is, it inspires a birds and bees conversation here. Osamu takes such great joy in getting to do these paternal tasks. But something that we talked about a little bit earlier, as a counterpoint to these moments, Grandma does say one benefit of choosing your own family is to not have expectations. So how do you read this? Benefit in what way? Fewer traditional obligations? Fewer obligations, period? Is it a freedom to define it your way, but with just as many self-imposed obligations? I guess I think of it like I do so much from an almost selfish, egocentric worldview, as in less expectation for me to the rest of these people, as opposed to them for me. Just across the board, what's expected of you? I think so, and that's really just coming from me as a person. It also finally occurred to me here, when she calls Nobuyo lady and tells her she's good looking, I finally realized I don't think these people are specifically connected by blood. Again, I am maybe kind of dim. It feels more like adults on the same wavelength, which feels really good, not always true with family. Well, unfortunately, she doesn't have to worry about that very much longer. Grandma, that is. We know that she's tired. As she's watching her family, we observe this 
silent prayer of thanks that also seems filled with a resigned satisfaction. The way this is telegraphed, we know what's coming. It's a little more subtle than coughing blood into your handkerchief, but it was no less definite, right? You felt that too? Yes, I did. There is that sense of finding something and losing something, and this is the loss. And it also occurred to me that we essentially lose our family members twice, once by choice, the next by death. Well, loss operates on a scale, I feel like. And it's interesting how this is presented. In the next scene, Yuri loses a tooth, Grandma dies. And I really appreciate the way they juxtapose these, each of these processes being epical in their own way, inevitable and equal, I feel like. And so now there's work to do. And by the way, that lost tooth, that was just a happy accident that occurred during production. One more thing that occurs to me here before we move on, again, another parallel to Paris, Texas, is how wonderful these child actors are. Corrieta says that he never gives the children in his films a script. They don't know the full story. Instead, every day on set, he gives them each their lines. He tells them what they're going to be talking about, and they can choose their own words. So he specifically casts children who, during the audition process, respond to that method, and then he creates trust and a relationship with them. Well, it's good in the casting and directing process, but if we're talking about in real life, these kids are being groomed to deal with things in a certain way. Grandma Was Never Here, for instance, is now the play that they have to put on. Grief doesn't have much room as part of the equation either. So it does really echo what Shota told Yuri early in the game, this event will just soon be part of the past. It does make me curious about that past, though, when we hear, I can't believe we're burying another one. It feels a little sinister. This detached compartmentalization that we've been talking about, is it evidence not of a pragmatic life approach, but instead a lengthy series of crimes and murders? Quite possibly, because again, there's no possibility for an ambulance, no money for a funeral or cremation, police can't be involved, so they bury her in the house. So yes, that can't be good, even though we think we know what the stakes are. And I think that's why here we start to think about the gradients of what it means to do wrong. This discussion about it's okay to shoplift in a big store as long as it doesn't go bankrupt. They don't own this stuff. And as we're watching them going to the bank to get grandma's pension. Well, Shota is the one that all of this is happening within right now. He is beginning to question things and draw his own moral lines, develop his own code. There are some things now that he won't participate in, for example. Do you think that this happens as soon for him if it is not for Yuri's arrival as a catalyst? Because he spends an awful lot of time in his cool bed slash clubhouse in the cupboard. How much of that time is spent confronting these feelings that are popping up now? If Yuri doesn't show up and make him do the initial examination of his place in all this and how it's changing, does that door to the larger moral questions get opened yet? I think you're right. I think there would at least be a delay because there's just that other voice, whether it's in the guise of the shop owner or someone else, to give him a different perspective. I think the other thing at work here, aside from these outside perspectives that he's getting because of Yuri's arrival, the thing that could be affecting him most is that maybe he perceives this as disloyalty to him. So now there's a weaker connection between he and the family. Though the obvious pressures are still external, they're still coming from without the family. You talked about this idea that the director has. 
that crime is born out of society and social ills. Now, Coreda doesn't really see shoplifting as an incredibly serious offense, more of a minor infraction. Does he say anything about where he rates pension fraud in relation to that? He does, and society's reaction to some fairly recent stories about pension fraud, coupled with how he was feeling about shoplifting, those are why he created this story, why he focused on this. Let me give you some examples that seem pretty crazy. So just as a baseline, in 2010, more than 77,000 people aged supposed to be 120 years old or older were still listed as alive (laughs) in government records. 884 of them were over 150 years old. And basically, more than 230,000 people were completely unaccounted for. The benefits of Eastern medicine, am I right? I think again about focusing on those people who have been left behind by this safety net. Some specific examples. 2010, a family had collected 30 years of pension payments and had been living with the mummified corpse of the pensioner during that time. They said he wanted to become a living Buddha. Maybe he did, I don't know. The daughter was 81 years old. The granddaughter was 53 years old. So these weren't kids doing this. In 2015, a woman was arrested for cashing her dead parents' pension checks for 50 years. She was 86 when she was arrested. Shoplifting rates for the elderly have gone way up. And because of stories like this, about 1,700 pensioners' payments were completely suspended during this investigation period. Think about all of those people who are not even getting their $600 a month. Well, bad news for you. I already cashed out my 401k, sucker. (laughs) These external pressures are obviously huge. Culture-wide, it's an immense consideration. The question I come back to with Shota, though, is implosion an equal consideration here. Because his final decision undoes everything, literally everything, for this family. And I think it's clear that it is a decision that he's made. It's not an accident. In one way, yes. I'll get to that in a little bit before we get through with all this. But clearly, Osamu is somewhat undisciplined and a little bit of a hypocrite now we've seen in terms of the crimes he's willing to commit. He's a little bit cavalier with it compared to what we and Shota thought he would do. And then, as often happens, all of these terrible things start to take on a momentum of their own. Yamatoya's store being closed means that the kids have to try another place. Bad choices bad omens, whatever you want to call it. They're children, so there's no plan, as it were. Yuri begins to steal in this new store and is about to be caught, so Shota creates a distraction and a chase ensues. He's hurt, and that really is the catalyst for everything beginning to unravel. Yet another parallel with Osamu. Broken foot, broken leg. With the police now involved at the hospital, Osamu and Nobuyo, they take a powder. They leave Shota to fend for himself and they plan on sneaking off in the middle of the night, though they are caught, and all of their misdeeds begin to come to light. They killed Nobuyo's previous husband, as it turns out. Aki finds out that that's how they are connected. But it was self-defense. A beautiful, ironic touch to these interrogations, I think, is that once caught, these adults who have no compunction about living a life completely devoted to petty crime all tell the truth. At every juncture, 
They never lie once they're caught. We were protecting her, they say, and that is absolutely true, I think. It's the police here that I think form society, almost to the point of feeling like caricatures because they, rightly or wrongly, are able to convince Yuri, Shota, and Aki that they were just pawns in this larger scheme, even making them doubt grandma's motives. It's really difficult to watch this. The family is being permanently dismantled. Each person is being dismantled. And this means that somebody is going to take the entire weight, and that's Nobuyo. I definitely don't see Osamu stepping forward to do that. And this ends with Shota going into the foster system. Though, on the bright side, it's a chance for him to go to school, but then it means Yuri goes back home and this cycle of violence and neglect begins again. With all of these things that are happening, I feel like Aki is the one that is most adrift in all this. She still had not found her home, I don't think. She was the outsider in both cases, with her biological family and her chosen family. Grandma was her home. The rest was incidental. And if you undermine the idea of grandma now... She is back to having nothing and no one. My initial thought, I'd said earlier that Grandma was the softie, but it's really complex. She's been at this a long time. You mentioned these long spans that people go collecting these pensions. Grandma, she also operates first from a position of self-preservation. But she did those little things like saying her pen out loud at the ATM so Aki would know it. That's not something a canny grifter does accidentally. She is sending signals, passing along information. So Aki is left not knowing what to think. In his case, Osamu says, I had nothing else to teach them. In his way, is there any more parental thing that he could have said at that juncture? I definitely worry about Aki as a young woman now having no real sense of what it means to be truly loved for herself. That's a dangerous place to be. And before we get away from these interrogation scenes, I wanted to mention one thing that I really liked. You talked about Nobuyo being ready to carry the full weight of this. She is willing to sacrifice everything for this family connected by so much other than blood. And there was a visual touch in these interrogation scenes that I thought was brilliant. When you look on the wall behind Osamu, the wall is painted in such a way that there's a line bisecting his head horizontally. I thought, this seems too perfectly rendered to be an accident. So as the interrogations go on, pay attention to that line. Osamu and Nobuyo both begin in a similar position relative to the line, and I kept thinking of it in the context of their trip to the beach and the water line. They both begin only partially submerged relative to this line. By the end, only Nobuyo has sunk below that line, metaphorically sinking or drowning as Osamu stays afloat. And just another powerhouse scene for her, too. This final interrogation with Sakura Ando is incredible. She's so composed and powerful, even though she is operating from a completely helpless position. And she has some of the most fascinating lines too. The police saying, well, children need their mothers. And Nobuyo saying, that's just what mothers imagine. Do you think giving birth automatically makes you a mother? She's making, for her, her final sacrifice here the final best thing that she could ever do for these people. I also think about something that she said earlier. The position that Yuri is in now, Nobuyo wondered, in that same situation, would Yuri become more like them, not caring about other people? Talk about a dangerous situation to be put back in. You mentioned this 
a second ago, this cycle of abuse and the potential for it to begin again feels terrible. Again, though, I have to ask, do we feel that in part because of cultural differences? I think it's easy for us to say, for example, why was she returned to her abusers? But I have zero experience with the Japanese equivalent of Child Protective Services. I don't know how this situation would be handled by them or viewed by Japanese society at large. This feels like the biggest, least subtle, most obvious moment of the film for me. And so I struggle with it a little bit. What about you? The same for me. It's the most difficult part to watch because of how the police and society at large are treating this, responding to this. But the most amazing emotionally for the actual characters. Interesting, because I really have the biggest problem, I think, with the obvious way that Yuri and her real mother interact in terms of how simplistic it is. Oh, really? Okay. Since we're talking about it on the subject of subtlety or lack thereof, do you feel like this is a crowd pleaser, quote unquote, in that sense that it can be too obvious? I know there wasn't a huge backlash after Khan necessarily, but one person did refer to Koreeda as the Ron Howard of international art house cinema. Oh, gosh. It doesn't feel like that to you at all, though, right? It doesn't. Not that specific interaction. It's not my favorite, but I don't think it's as ham-handed as you feel it is. So we're going to differ just a bit there. Well, I definitely don't feel that way about the film overall. There was just something about this short sequence. And in terms of him being the Ron Howard of international art house cinema, I feel like in the hands of an accomplished filmmaker like Coretta, it's possible to do both or all of those things without being treacly or overly sentimental. I will say it's the one scene that makes me bump it down from five stars to four and a half. Okay. I think it's just another way to contemplate how society sees this versus how we see it because we're inside with them. That returning Yuri to her neglectful, abusive mother versus people who had bonded as a family and also committed these other crimes. That those are somehow so much worse. Well, speaking of returning to your home... In this end sequence, we also have this really intriguing, very short scene where we see Aki returning to their house. There's so much in this for me, and it happens so fast. I'm left with so many questions. I want to see what you think about it. Here are the myriad options I'm thinking about. Why does she return? What does this symbolize? Is she going to this house to begin again as maybe the matriarch of her own chosen family? Is it that she is going back to see what's left of the family that she thought she had and it's just empty and hollow? Is it more mercenary? Is she going back to look for loot that grandma might have hidden somewhere? I have a million questions about this. I think it's none of those things. <laughs> I see that she's dressed completely differently, more conservatively. I think that she's going back because she feels there might be an answer there. There might be something that showed her I was really loved, and I don't know if it's there or not, because it's just the final remnants without people. And maybe part of her wonders, did I really do this? Well, I mentioned earlier that Nobuyo is doing this final sacrifice, this final best thing, and that really is, in these last moments, to release Shota. Osamu takes him to the jail. Nobuyo is just getting five years, which I think is a good thing. And she tells Shota where they found him, where they quote-unquote saved him from. Osamu is completely blindsided by this. 
but it seems like Nobuyo knows everything in this moment. She says that she's not good enough for him, and when she finally says, I'm done, to the guard, I think she is. If you had any doubt before, you can't doubt at this point. She is tougher than all the rest of them put together. I think it's a brilliant move that she addresses this whole conversation to Shota. That's the repair that she needs to make, and she ignores everything and everyone else. Her focus is that of a mother doing her best for her child. And when you talk about, I'm done, and she goes away, when she turns and you get that last little eyebrow flicker before she disappears for good, she's so good. That eyebrow flicker actually made my heart skip a beat when she did that. I think my favorite moment is when she says she loved every minute of it. Now, is Osamu going to be the father that he's longed to be this entire time? He and Shota have a father and son day. And they each eventually own up to what they've done. Osamu was going to leave without him. Shota deliberately got caught. Do you feel like Shota is telling the absolute truth when he says that? I believe that it's the truth and also possibly not the entire truth. I think that he is giving Osamu a way out as well. But still, it's Osamu's chance to finally become the father, releasing Shota, saying that I won't be your dad after this point, makes him a dad. And it's that final word, dad, on Shota's lips that he can't say out loud. It's incredible. I think you might give Shota a little more credit than I do at this point with the I got caught on purpose part of things. I don't feel like he's so much giving Osamu a way out as he's insulating himself. He's 12. He's hurt. I don't think he has the emotional capacity yet to not hurt back. I see what you're saying. Okay, it hadn't occurred to me. But I do like the fact that he managed to do this and technically keep within a moral code because you're absolutely right. It's both true and not true, but not for the reason implied or inferred. It was intentional, yes, as he was acting as a distraction to save Yuri, but I don't think his overall aim was to break his leg and for the dissolution of the family. And you answered a question already that I had for you. If Osamu is closer to being a father at this point, I definitely think so. In fact, I don't think either he or Shota realize the depth of their feelings and how they are truly father and son until that bus pulls away and they may have seen each other for the last time. Even though we've known that all along. Family must be tested as well as tended, I think is the final point here. How can you be sure of the strength of a thing if it does not occasionally endure a trial or two? Now, I know I said this at the very beginning, that this is somewhat optimistic and that I didn't walk out hating the world, but this final, final scene does test that. It's little Yuri playing by herself on the porch as always, making a step to look up and over the top before she could only look through, wondering, I think, what else is out there? At least I hope she is. Does she become that person who doesn't care about others? What happens to her? Well, I'm going to help you out a lot here, I think, because I hear people complaining about this final scene as vague or unsatisfying, and I guess I just have no idea what you people are looking at. Earlier, when Yuri first returned to the home, she wouldn't say she was sorry because she wasn't in the wrong. And now on the balcony, not content to look through when she looks out and over, 
Her last little tiny motion is to breathe in and stand up higher, rising to meet what's out there. It's subtle, but it is a strong and defiant gesture, I think. Gosh, I hope that's right. I'm going to go with that. Let's go with that. The end. (laughs) So then where do you want to go from here? What recommendation do you have to cap off shoplifters? I'm going to go back to one of the Bedrock Foundation films about families scratching for survival in the margins, and I am recommending Bicycle Thieves from 1948, directed by Vittorio De Sica and starring Lamberto Maggiorani and Enzo Steola as a father and son desperately scouring Rome for their stolen bicycle, the bicycle that means employment and therefore food and survival for their family. It might seem like a kind of obvious choice, but I'm going to say... Much like a can of Wolf Brand Chili, how long has it been since you've seen Bicycle Thieves? Well, buddy, that's too long. It's true. I think for me, it's at least 10 years, maybe probably more, actually. I need to get back to it. Yeah, you need to get on that. It is one of the linchpin films of Italian neorealism and really just one of the greatest films of all time. It's eminently rewatchable, too, if your heartstrings can take it. And you can follow the line of social realism that De Sica established all the way through to something like shoplifters. I think it's fair to say, without the former, you might not have the latter. Call them two sides of the same coin. Heads, you sacrifice for your blood. Tails, you sacrifice for every other reason. Either way, Erica cries her eyeballs out. Boy, it's true. (laughs) What about you? What's your recommendation? I chose Birds of Passage from 2018. We just saw this in the theaters. Directed by Christina Gallego and Ciro Guerra, with Carmina Martinez, Jose Acosta, and Natalia Reyes. It's about a period in the Colombian drug trade from the perspective of an indigenous family and culture. I decided on this one because it was also a profound experience in the theater. And it's about dismantling a family, an entire culture. And like shoplifters, I think the seeds are sown for that dismantling before we even come into the story. I won't say much more as it's so new and probably just now available to be seen by many members of our audience. So as always, that's two great recommendations, Bicycle Thieves and Birds of Passage. And that brings us to the end of episode 101. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, over 50 of those now, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our new podcast network, The 25th Frame, is up and going strong now. And I wanted to highlight one of the other shows on the network this time around, and that is Film Baby Film. It's a show hosted by our friend John Laubinger and is a podcast for people who love movies or films, if you're being pretentious, as he says. He just did an excellent episode on Ingmar Bergman's Hour of the Wolf, with another friend of the show, Dave Eaves. One of my favorite things about John's show is that he covers so much ground, both stylistically and geographically. If you want modern masters like Paul Thomas Anderson, he's got you covered. If you want the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he's done that too. If you want titans of the art house like Bergman and Visconti, look no further. 
and he does all of that with a sense of humor, a comprehensive approach, and an eye for detail. So check out Film Baby Film wherever you get your podcasts or at 25thframemedia.com. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Andrew Pierce, David Lawrence, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films podcast, John Laubinger, Terry and Liz at Happily Cinna Married, Dave Eaves, Josh Hornbeck, and Doug McCambridge over at Good Times Great Movies. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure and tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and now the 25th Frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.